Hi, my name's Daniel Coe. Um, I am in Olympia, Washington. I'm the graphics editor for the Washington Geological Survey and cartographer, and um, I also make maps on my own, a lot of river images and map-like things with rivers. The first map I remember making was in elementary school, or a set of maps, I should say. There was like a 50 states project where we were supposed to learn about all 50 states in the United States. And um, part of the project was to draw each state. So that was kind of my first my first recollection of making maps. But I wasn't particularly into like drawing or art as a like a little kid. But when I got into high school, I got more into it and um, I started painting and you know, spending a lot of time in different art classes doing things like that. And I eventually went to um, art school after high school. I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I went to um, a commercial art school there for a few years. And after that, I kind of hit the road and I had a travel book. So I actually just moved to Alaska and ended up working as a sea kayak guide for, for many years um, in southeastern Alaska. And... Um, you know, I was just kind of wandering around. I would work seasonal jobs and then travel in the off season. And, um, you know, I always had a curiosity for different places and geography kind of seemed like a good fit. And I ended up going back to school at Portland State University in Oregon many years later and um, found myself in the geography department there. And after a couple of years of being there, I had the opportunity to work on this um, tree mapping project with uh, some of my colleagues at Portland State, um, kind of IDing trees and mapping them in different parks around the city. And um, I kind of had an epiphany when I started working on that. I was like, right, art, geography, maps, right? I've kind of always been obsessed with maps and I you know, hadn't really thought about it all that much up until then. And um, that was kind of where I started with map making, at least as an adult. Um, and, you know, I did several internships while I was at Portland State, um, GIS and mapping related. And yeah, just ended up sticking in this field and loving it. And the more I do it, the, the more interesting I find it. And yeah, it's just been a great career for me. So you finished at Portland State, did all those internships. Did you then start professionally? Not right away. So I was doing an internship at an environmental consulting company and um, right as I was kind of nearing the end of my my undergraduate degree, that's when the economy kind of tanked back in the, I don't, know, I don't remember exactly what year that was, like 2008, 2009-ish, somewhere in there. And, um, you know, they, they were all set to hire me before that. And then they were like, actually, we, we're not going to hire you. So I had to kind of go off and figure out, figure out what I was going to do after that. I ended up back in Alaska working as a naturalist on a boat for a season um, and, and as a guide up there um, just to kind of bridge the gap. And when I got back, I worked for another environmental consultant. And then um, this opportunity came up to work for Dogami. I actually applied for a, a GIS analyst job at Dogami. And Dogami is the Oregon Department of Geology, basically, the, their geological survey. And I didn't get the job I applied for, but they called me back and said, hey, we got this temporary position that we'd love to for you to you know take part in. So I kind of got my foot in the door there. And um, at the time, you know, they still are actually the the Oregon Department of Geology is kind of the nexus for collecting LIDAR data in Oregon. And I started experimenting with LIDAR there and I kind of got hooked with, you know, landform visualization and um, 
geology related mapping and things like that. So I ended up uh, working there for about five years or so. So that was a really fantastic opportunity to, to work my way into the fields and um, work more on the physical geography side of things. I got hired on as a, a kind of semi-permanent employee there and um, they were kind of two-year positions actually so after a while you know it became clear that it was it wasn't a super stable <laughs> environment at least it wasn't at the time and um, my then girlfriend and I kind of hatched this plan that if we got if we got laid off we would travel and so we kind of started making this plan and she's um, we're married now so we've been together since then but we got told at a certain point that you know we we're probably going to get laid off at the end of the year so we we're like okay plan b let's let's hit the road and do some traveling so at the end of that year we left and and traveled for quite a while um and i kind of i didn't make a single map for a whole year and um it was kind of nice actually to focus on you know some other things in life and uh kind of engage with that curiosity about the world a little bit more. That was a good opportunity to, to get out and do some different things. And I've always, I've always kind of had the travel bug, so I always felt very fortunate to be able to take advantage of, you know, that time in life when things are a bit uncertain and, you know, you can just, um, you're a little more free to kind of choose your own adventure. Where did that year take you? We went a lot of places. We started off, um, we headed down to New Zealand for a couple months and kind of worked our way across that part of the world over to Australia, up through Southeast Asia. Um, and we spent quite a few months in that, that region. And then we hopped over to um, kind of the Balkans and Turkey, um, spent a lot of time traveling over in like Bulgaria and, um, you know, Bosnia, uh, Croatia, Slovenia, and then kind of hopped over, traveled with some friends in Western Europe for a little bit, headed up to Iceland, back to North America to visit some family and friends. And then, um, we ended up heading down to South America with some other friends who met us there and did, did some backpacking in Patagonia and then kind of headed up back through the Atacama and then back home. That's the fast version. <laughs> so quite a few different places, but it was, uh, it was a great, great opportunity and happy to have done it. Was this all technical outerwear travel or were you ever sleeping indoors during this time? <laughs> a little bit of everything. You know, we, we traveled with, with our backpacks and spent a lot of days outside in places where, um, you know, either we had planned to do that, like New Zealand, for example, you know, we were outside pretty much the whole time. Um, other places, you know, where we could afford a little more nicer uh, accommodation, we would we would stay indoors. So it was a little little bit of a mix. And so you came back and then got back into the W two life, or it was really interesting when we were in. I think we were in France. I I saw this. I was on a bunch of you know job listservs, kind of planning ahead to to see what opportunities there were when we when we arrived back and. Um, I should say my wife's a geologist, and so we, we actually worked together at Dogami, you know, the previous several years, and um, I saw this job opportunity that came up in Washington State, and I knew there was a person up here that kind of did similar work that I did that was planning on retiring in the next few years, and I saw it popping up, and I was like, oh my gosh, they're retiring right now, and so I... I applied for the job really quickly, and it just happened that when we were back in North America, um, you know, they called me and said, hey, you want to do an interview? So 
Um, we headed back out to the West Coast for a few days, um, stayed with some friends. I borrowed my friend's car, drove up from Portland to Olympia and had an interview. And then right around that same time, um, that someone from that same office who's a landslide, the head of their landslide geology group said they were, you know, they were hiring somebody and my wife applied for that job around the same time. And we, we basically both got hired on right as we were returning from our trip. So it, it actually was a <laughs> just this amazing like alignment of the stars to, you know, land in these positions and um, in Olympia, Washington, which was a place we had thought about moving to. So it worked out pretty well. A favored geography, two public service jobs for a couple. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. We felt very, very fortunate. Is, does that bring us to today? It does, yeah. So I, I started out, um, I guess that was about, that was 2016, um, starting to work at the Washington Geological Survey. And I started off as, um, I think my title was like GIS cartographer or something like that. And I think... You know, one of the main reasons I got hired there is because I had experience with the, um, the their state map project, which is the geologic mapping um, kind of grant program funded by the USGS, and they they fund state surveys to do geologic mapping um, in their states. So I had experience working on those projects in Oregon, um, kind of as the the cartographer making the maps look nice, and um, at the end of the project. So you know, I got hired on as the, as the cartographer. And then as the position grew, um, you know, I, I started doing more kind of other graphics work like illustration and video and photography, um, just all the other things I'm interested in, <laughs> um, from a visual communication standpoint. And, um, so my position kind of switched over to a more general graphics person, but, um, you know, at the core of it is definitely cartography and, and making maps. And that's, you know, my passion in uh, in the graphics realm, for sure. So you started doing reams of geologic section maps for Oregon, and then and Washington branched out into general graphics work, all the communication stuff? Pretty much. Um, you know, when I was in Oregon, though, th this really interesting thing happened when I, probably my first year there, um, I was working with uh, this guy, John English, who's... Um, he was their LIDAR coordinator at the time. He's a brilliant guy. He was actually a geomorphologist as well. And, you know, he had me working on some some projects that involved LIDAR. And I was kind of just tinkering around with LIDAR one day. And we had just gotten this new data set in the Willamette Valley. And I was just messing around with the elevation values to see, you know, what I could make pop out of the data. And all of a sudden, this amazing blue, <laughs> like sinuous river popped out of my screen. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, hey, John, look at this. And, you know, as a geomorphologist, he was like, Wow, that's really, that's really cool. You should do something with that. And um, so that was kind of an, an epiphany moment for me, like, wow, science and art can make these really interesting images. And, you know, the image itself um, was beautiful to look at, but it also showed this deeper history, you know, natural history of the area, all these channels that I was seeing were like Missoula floods deposits where the river had flowed over time. So it was this really neat um, thing that happened just somewhat by happenstance, by accident. And um, it got me hooked on tinkering with LIDAR data and, and, you know, making images out of landforms and, 
you know, Oregon's obviously a very beautiful state with a very diverse geography um, and landscape. So, you know, from the volcanoes to the coast range to the rivers, um, the the Columbia Gorge, like there was just there were just endless opportunities to make maps and images of um, these landforms. And you know, some the the one of the scientists there saw that, and he's like, "Hey, I was been I've been thinking about 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 making a kind of a lidar calendar to give away as a promotional thing for our." our LIDAR program, um, just to get that out there and to show people the different kinds of things you can do with LIDAR data and the different types of um, information that can be gleaned from this. So he was like, hey, do you think you can make me like 12 images for this calendar idea? And um, so I started doing that and I ended up doing that all five years um, I was there. So I made a lot of a lot of LIDAR images and that, you know, that carried over to Washington where they also are kind of now the nexus of Washington State um, LIDAR collection. Um, there's two full-time LIDAR people there that um, organize all of that and process the data and, and put, put it out into the world for people to use. So um, I've been able to continue geo-visualization with LIDAR there, which is something I really love to do. So um, that was kind of the big thread for me as far as, you know, growth with mapping and um, carrying on the skills that I learned in Oregon into Washington. And for listeners who might not know what we're talking about, could you give a brief end-to-end on uh, making these sinuous river LIDAR maps? Sure. So, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of large rivers are on relatively flat landscapes, you know, big, big open floodplains that don't cover a lot of elevation change. Um, and one technique that I often use with um, just visualizing these rivers is just to, to kind of bracket the elevation values. And that's what I did with that Willamette River image. I just said, okay, here's my color ramp. The, the bottom elevation is gonna be, let's say it's gonna be 100 meters above sea level and the top elevation is gonna be 110 meters above sea level. So that, that kind of visual range between the darkest color and the lightest color is kind of squished into that 10 meter um, range and often what that can do is really make the river and all of its geomorphic features um, that are on the floodplain pop out. So you know, like former channels where it used to flow in the past, um, meander scars, oxbow lakes, things like that. Um, so that often works just in and of itself. But another technique you can use is making a relative elevation model, which you know it, it changes your base value of zero from being sea level basically to following the path or following the surface of the river. So effectively you convert the surface of the river to being your zero value. And then everything else is elevation in relation to the river itself. So it's, it's a little abstract to explain with words, <laughs> um, but hopefully that, hopefully that makes sense. That's perfect. And you have such a deep toolkit for a map maker. GIS, 3D, 2D illustration. Do you have a favorite that say, I got free reign to make a map, I'm going to do it this way? That's a great question. I use, I probably use Photoshop more than any other application. Um, <laughs> so, you know, just being able to be kind of have full free reign with color and brightness and contrast and all of those things. Um, you know, a lot of GIS programs have gotten a lot better over the years at doing those things, but I, I definitely, 
I love working with raster data and I love um, the flexibility that Photoshop gives me. And I'm, you know, I'm a very amateur photographer, so I've been tinkering with it for a long time. And um, yeah, especially with these river images, I definitely employ, employ Photoshop widely and using it with these sorts of images. So raster processed in QGIS tuned in Photoshop. Yeah, I think another thing I really enjoy, you know, with rivers and beyond is making flat landscapes more interesting <laughs> to the from visually. So, you know, not only with river floodplains, which are obviously often very flat, but in Washington, we have a lot of kind of glacial created features on the landscape. So, you know, 15,000 years ago, there was a big chunk of ice basically over most of Northern Washington, including um, over Puget Sound where I live. So there's all these somewhat subtle um, landforms on the landscape. And one of the things I really love doing is just being able to bring those out and make those more apparent to um, people that might not realize A, what they are when you're standing on the ground looking at them or, or, or B, just not even be aware that they're there. Um, well, so there's like glacial drumlins, which are these kind of elongated teardrop shaped landforms that are all over, um, Northern Washington and the Puget Sound area. And those are really apparent with LIDAR, um, where you can kind of strip away the, the vegetation cover and just see the bare ground. Um, and then, you know, by using sh different shaded relief techniques, you can really make them pop out. Um, even in my neighborhood, there's there's kind of these interesting depressions in the landscape when I walk around. They're trying to describe. It's kind of like a little, just a little divot in the landscape where there's just a little valley that goes down. And often there's like a pond or a wetland at the bottom of these, but they don't generally have any outflow. And they're kind of these pockmarks on the landscape. And it's super interesting because what these are is when the, when the glacier started receding from this area, it just dropped these big chunks of ice. Um, on the land and, you know, with all that glacial meltwater and sediment flowing around them, you kind of insulated them. Eventually they melted out and just created these little divots in the land. So um, they're called glacial kettles and they're all over Olympia. <laughs> um, and you wouldn't really know what they are unless you were really kind of thinking about it and, and you know, talking to a geologist probably. But um, I just find stuff like that fascinating and just being able to interpret the landscape around you, um, I find really gratifying and, um, yeah, kind of revealing these hidden landscapes that are right in front of us that we might not even know are there. Things you wouldn't notice unless you talk to geologists at work all day, talk to geologists at home, and then played with LIDAR a lot. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I should say I'm not, I'm definitely not a geologist, but I work with a lot of really amazing people and geologists. So I get to learn, I get to learn new things all the time, which is one of the best things about my job. So. Oh yeah. That'll keep you interested. Since your work has been the poster child for Pacific Northwest LIDAR collection, has it ever fed back into the actual tasking? Do you ever get to stand over someone's shoulder and be like, Oh, I really want a, a 20 centimeter collection over here. Can you buy that? <laughs> um, unfortunately, I don't have that kind of influence. That would be pretty awesome. The The cool thing, though, is is the state of Washington is is investing a lot of money in collecting LIDAR data. And, um, you know, by the end of, I want to say the next year or two, we're going to have collected LIDAR in all or most, at least most of the state. So, so um, you know, they're in the process now of kind of filling in the donut holes of where there isn't 
currently data available. Um, but yeah, fortunately I haven't had to do that. There's, there's always something new and, um, you know, the, the channeled scab lands are kind of the last frontier in Washington as far as filling in the data holes. So, um, I'm, I'm very excited for that data to come in here in the next year to be able to experiment with it. Um, and a lot of the national parks actually are being reflown as well, or have already been reflown. Um, Mount Rainier got flown last year, so that data will be in soon. Um, North Cascades and Olympic National Park as well. So I'm, I'm super stoked about all the, the new opportunities for, <laughs> for mapping. And speaking of mountains, I was looking at your Mount St. Helens, a mountain reborn map. I would appreciate an end-to-end -end on how you made that because it looks like a lot of techniques went into it. So that that project kind of went back a few years back. I was talking with some of the some of my colleagues at the USGS Cascades Volcano Observatory, and they were planning an, an event for the the 40th anniversary of Mount St. Helens eruption, and that was three years ago. And right right when that that timing of all of that came together it was when the the covid pandemic kind of landed on all of us so it didn't didn't end up happening but we we had been planning on um creating a couple products for that a map and um they they made this fact sheet i think it was called like 10 ways mount st helens has changed our world or something like that um and unfortunately I, the the map just didn't happen for me um but a couple of years later, I kind of got back into that project and I thought, hey, what would be a good complement to, to what they put out? And my idea was to show kind of the some ways the landscape of Mount St. Helens itself has changed in the last four decades. So that was kind of my starting point um, for that map. And, you know, there's a lot of fantastic maps of Mount St. Helens out there because it's a it's obviously a really studied area and um, it's a big recreation area and it's just, it's fascinating on a, on a number of levels. But I hadn't really seen kind of a, a, a sort of 3D view or perspective view map of the mountain that I thought really captured the essence of the place. And um, so I really wanted to do that. So I kind of just tinkered around um, with some 3D views moving around and I kind of got an angle that I really liked that, you know, most people approach the mountain from the west towards Johnson Ridge Visitor Center. So I kind of wanted that to be kind of the main, the main focus of the map and to be looking into the crater of Mount St. Helens. So I kind of sized up the angle and then um, over several months I worked on this. It was kind of just a side project, but um, I use a program called Quick Train Modeler quite a bit when I make these perspective view maps because it renders um, 3D images really super sharply. Um, like Arc Arc Pro, you know, it's it's good if you're working on a smaller size map, for example. But um, unfortunately, when you're in 3D scenes and you export them, they only they only apparently export at the screen resolution that you have on your screen, which is not not great if you want a printed product. So I use this other program, um, like I said, that makes makes really sharp images. So um, usually what I'll do is I'll get a couple different shaded relief angles. I'll get some, um, you know, kind of elevation based color layers in there, the DMs um, that have color applied. I'll, you know, layer over a um, an air photo. I used, I think, Nape imagery for that particular project, which is, is um, I think, three, 
three foot resolution imagery. So it's pretty sharp for the size of a map. And I kind of make all these layers and I, I should say, actually, I use kind of the bare earth there, the, the DTM LIDAR data, as well as the, the top surface or DSM. So the, the part that captures all the trees and all of the um, structures and things like that for this particular map. And I export that probably in, I don't know, a dozen or so layers um, and bring them all into Photoshop where I kind of blend and um, clean up the images and, and squish them all together, <laughs> for lack of a better word, um, into kind of the, the background image of the map. And, you know, it's it's kind of a natural view. It's, it's you know, heavily based on the photo, which I don't tend to like making maps that are purely just photo based because, you know, why not just take a photo and put some text on it, right? But I feel like I, I did enough changes to this particular map um, to focus the viewer on the parts of the mountain that change. So for example, like the, the, the lava domes inside the crater, the mountain's basically been growing um, again, up to its full volcano size eventually. <laughs> um, but it's also grown a glacier in the crater, which is pretty rare these days to have a glacier that's growing, but due to, you know, aspect and um, avalanches and rockfall kind of insulating it, the, the glacier has actually grown quite a bit in the past um, several decades. So those are the sorts of things I wanted to focus on on the map. So I I got the background all set up in Photoshop. I exported that image once I got, was happy with it. And um, I also had exported a bunch of vector layers um, that were based off of like the roads and trails kind of from that same view. And I brought those into Illustrator and I, I kind of redigitize everything in Illustrator at that point with these sorts of maps just to make them smooth and um, look really sharp. And then I add all the labels and you know, all the text and things like that into the map. So all those things had to kind of be accounted for, for this sort of static map. Um, and then the final and perhaps most important step is I got a lot of, um, I got a lot of great reviews of the map, not only from the forest service. Um, I got a review from Washington state parks. They run a, or a Mount St. Helens visitor center close to the volcano. Um, I got reviews from the Mount St. Helens Institute. And then most importantly, the, the Cascades Volcano Observatory gave it a full USGS review, which definitely greatly improved, um, particularly the text of the map and just, um, you know, all the content that went with it. So I was really happy that um, they were willing to do that. And um, yeah, I feel like it turned out great. And it's been a good, it's been a good kind of interpretive map and conversation starter, not only for us at the Geological Survey, but for other groups, we've given these maps away to the Forest Service, like Johnson Ridge Visitor Center and um, state parks and other groups like that. So, yeah, it was really it was kind of low hanging fruit. I was like, wow, there's no real good um, Wash or Mount St. Helens map that's kind of like this. So I wanted to make it and was fortunate to have the the support and resources to be able to do it. Thanks. That's exactly what I was after. And in these reviews to, I guess, federal and state agencies and what did they mark up? Are they like this trail is wrong? This snow cover is never like this. I don't like this texture. Like, what, what were they pointing at? You know, with the different groups, there were kind of different things I was going after. But yeah, definitely trail information. Um, I went out and hiked a bunch of the trails as well. But there were there were one or two spots where trails had been rerouted due to various reasons, and I wasn't aware of that. So, you know, getting that information from, 
you know, the Forest Service or the, the Mount St. Helens Institute was really, um, really great because they're out there a lot more than I am. So things like that. And then the USGS, just the, the kind of the scientific content, um, just making sure everything I was saying was accurate or um, pointing out things I might not be aware of um, about. I, I highlighted five different um, parts of the landscape that changed the lava domes, the um, Crater Glacier, Spirit Lake, the North Fork Toodle River, and the Pumice Plain. So it was a pretty wide range of subject matter. So just getting their information um, you know, cause the, the, the textual or the text content had to be pretty concise to, to make it work with a map like this. So, um, you know, getting their input was, was really invaluable. So, um, a little bit of everything, I guess. And again, this was on your own time. This was a Washington geological survey product. So, um, you know, as long as I'm getting my, <laughs> my main, um, projects done, you know, there's a fair bit of latitude to, make these interpretive maps. Um, we've made them for several different places in Washington. Um, I'm trying to think of some examples here. So like I made a poster of the Olympic like relative elevation models of um, the Olympic rivers that flow into the, the Pacific. I've made um, kind of a, you know, those glacial features, a glacial feature map of the Puget Lowland or the Puget Sound area. Um, I made a map of Mount Olympus, um, kind of highlighting the, the moisture that, that lands on there and why, why it's a, a wet and snowy place, things like that. So, you know, these products are really handy when, if we're having like a public meeting or if we're going to, uh, people are going to a conference or they're, they're great conversation starters. They're great for like elementary schools, kids learning about geoscience, things like that. So they serve a number of purposes and, um, people seem to really respond um, positively toward them. So, um, and we give them away for free, which doesn't hurt. <laughs> Definitely. Did you see the Tauro Alpha illustrations of Mount St. Helens? I've seen those now that you mentioned that. And there were also some other um, really beautiful paintings by um, another USGS scientist back in the eighties, D. Molinar. And I think D. Molinar was actually a lot, he was known as a, you know, a pretty pioneering mountaineer in the Cascades and artist and all around geologist. So yeah, both, both those, those, um, both those sets of maps were, were good inspiration for sure. Or images, I should say, or paintings as well. Yeah. Have you ever had a project that came up with the geological survey or I guess in your own work that you thought, oh, this is really going to stretch me like a real challenge? Anytime there's there's new things to be learned, I feel like the, the the state map or the geologic mapping projects that we do every year definitely stretch my brain in ways <laughs> that were unexpected. Um, just learning about the geology in different parts of the state from from all of our mappers um, is a challenging project each and every year. Um, this year we're actually mapping six quadrangles in the state, which is quite quite a bit. So kind of the USGS quad. 24,000 scale quadrangles. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of information to process and there's a lot to add to the map. And, and I always, I always learn. And, um, sometimes it can be a little uncomfortable learning, but <laughs> at the end of the day, it's, um, it's always beneficial. So, you know, I think working just in general, working in a field that was not my, my major in college and that I, I definitely am not trained in is, is always, um, 
it can be challenging, but it's also super rewarding to learn about, about things that I haven't learned about before. So I think that's one, one of the best things about my job is, is just the opportunity to work on a variety of different projects and Washington's also a pretty geologically diverse state. So, um, you know, that's been great. Yeah. Having someone to check your work and say that's wrong and you're about to learn something as long as you get both. It's great. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Say I cleared your docket for a year. Do you have any thousand yard long-term projects you'd like to tackle? Yeah, there <laughs> a lot actually. There's this really interesting program um, that is, I think it's managed by the U.S. Park Service called the National Natural Landmark Program. And um, it's, it's super unique in that it is national natural landmarks um, are designated for their, I believe it's for their geologic or biologic uniqueness or value. And, um, you know, there's, I want to say there's like 15 or 16 of them in Washington state, for example. And, um, a lot of them are, are, are landscape sort of based, they're geology based. So one of them, for example, is the Mima mounds near, near where I live here in Olympia. And it's this kind of mysterious area with patterned ground. There's all these mounds that are about 30 feet wide and, and six or so feet tall. And nobody's really been able to to come to a consensus as to how they were created there. These particular ones are on glacial outwash prairies. So, but back in the sixties, it was recognized as a natural, um, a national natural landmark. But the, the cool thing about that program is sites are designated um, based on their value, but they can be on private land. They can be on federal land. They can be on state land. They can, they're, they're designated re regardless of their, their land manager. So, um, there's all these interesting places across the country that I didn't know anything about that once I kind of dove into this program, I thought, wow, this could make a really interesting, you know, mapping project to map a select number of these. Um, there's a place in Colorado called the Slumgullion Earth Flow, and it's this big landslide that um, dammed a lake. It's a valley blocking landslide uh, in Colorado, and it's still it's still moving very slowly every year. Part of the landslide is, and it's um, it's also a national natural landmark. And my brother, who's also a geologist, or I shouldn't say also, I'm not a geologist, but he's a geologist. He's he's worked on that. Um, you know, monitoring that landslide in the past. And I thought, hey, that'd be a cool collaboration to, to maybe make a map of that or, you know, any number of these other super interesting sites around the country. Um, and not necessarily as a, like a promotion of that program or anything. I just, it's kind of been a window into learning about all these interesting places. So um, that's definitely one that's been nagging, kind of scratching at my brain for a while. Um, and that would definitely take up some time <laughs> for sure. You got some site visits in mind to America's geomorphological wonders? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a fun road trip for sure. Going back to process, was this all just self-taught? Like, oh, I'm going to see how quick terrain modeler can do a job better than QGIS or Arc Pro. Is the genesis of all these new tools just, oh, I'm going to, you know, dig in the documents and have a fight with my package manager? Yeah, definitely a lot of um, banging my head against the wall, learning things. And 
I definitely, you know, for a lot of these, I kind of learned my niche of the tools that I need to learn and don't worry about most of the other ones. So, you know, even QGIS, for example, I've definitely only scratched the surface of its capabilities, but I, I appreciate new projects because they offer the opportunity to, to learn new tools or learn new techniques. So, um, yeah, little by little, I learn more <laughs> very slowly. I definitely don't pick up on things super quick. So yeah, it definitely takes some time. Are there any map makers or cartographers living or dead that people should check out? Yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's tons. Uh, I, I think back to, to, you know, when I was a kid and looking at maps, one of the other things is my, my parents had a national geographic collection going back to like the late fifties. So I, I grew up looking at all these fantastic national geographic maps. Um, and you know, some of a couple of them that really stick in my brain are like the, um, I think it was Heinrich Brand did these renditions of um, the seafloors, like Marie Tharp's cartographic work of mapping the, like the Mid-Atlantic Mid Ridge, for example, like those maps blew my mind then and they still blow my mind now, um, you know, from a, from a shaded relief standpoint and just an artistic representation of the landscape, you know, those Marie Tharp's work was incredible. And, you know, right at the advent of, of, um, you know, the, the theory of plate tectonics becoming accepted and all, all of those things, like I find those really fascinating. Um, as far as modern day cartographers, I, I don't know. I, I go to the North American cartographic information society meeting, um, quite often the NASIS, um, annual meeting and, it's kind of, you know, it's the place to, to meet a lot of cartographers in this part of the world that are doing really amazing stuff. Um, and I had the opportunity this last spring to go to the, the International Mountain Cartography, International Cartographic Association Mountain Cartography meeting as well. And it was kind of like the distilled version of NASIS um, where we were, you know, mainly talking about, um, you know, landscape uh, relief techniques and landscape representation and, and mapping, you know, the physical landscape. So a lot of the people there are people that I've looked up to for a long time. You know, obviously like Tom Patterson is, um, you know, his website is called shadedrelief.com for, <laughs> for Pete's sake. So like, you know, the guy's been around a long time doing amazing work for the park service. Um, he's now retired, but he's still going strong, making amazing maps and, um, you know, definitely a lot to learn from, from people like Tom. Um, a lot of other people there. I, I met, um, met Maddie Grubb there this past year and Maddie is just making these just amazing, uh, uh these amazing maps. Um, there was one, I think it was the, the Bridger Ridge map and Maddie's map just blew my mind. I mean, it was like this beautiful representation of the landscape, um, along this mountain ridge. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely go check out Maddie's website and her, you know, the work that that's, that's there. Marty Schnur, um, Marty has made some amazing maps. I, I saw one of her presentations a few years ago at NASIS about a map she did of um, Anwar on the North Slope and how it was used um, in um, congressional testimony and just the influence that, that just the influence that maps can have um, and the power that they have that, that presentation and that map really stuck with me. Um, and she's done lots of really cool work since then too. Like, um, there's some maps she had in national geographic, uh, this past year on, um, you know, conservation lands in the U S and, 
um, migratory patterns of animals and things like that, that, that just blew my mind. So, um, definitely some great stuff there. Yeah. I'd say if you, if you want to want to check out great cartographers, go to NASIS, NASIS's YouTube site and just start clicking around in there with different interests. Um, you know, you'll find, you'll find some amazing work. Maddie was recommended by Carl Churchill. You must've met him at the cartography workshop. Carl's a, a mapping animal. <laughs> he's uh, seeing all the, the incredible stuff he's put out over the past several years has been, been really fantastic to watch. Um, I was like, man, slow down, slow down. You're doing too much, <laughs> but it's all, it's all, it's all really cool work. So yeah, he's, he's a great one. Thank you so much, Dan, for uh, taking the time before work to give me this rundown. Thanks, Evan. I appreciate, yeah, I appreciate talking to you and you doing this. This has been great. It's been great to listen to everybody else that you've been talking to as well. Bye. To see Dan's work, visit dancocarto.com. D-A-N-C-O-E-C-A-R-T-O. For show notes and bonus content, visit veryexpensivemaps.com. This episode is brought to you by the Map Consultancy, supplier of professional, data-driven maps for your decks, reports, walls, and events. Visit themapconsultancy.com to see what good maps can do for you. I'm Evan Applegate, I'm a cartographer, and you should make your own maps. No one wants to see dull, ugly maps. If you want to get through to your customers, you need the best cartography money can buy. The Map Consultancy will create maps with your data and your branding, PowerPoint decks, annual reports, conferences and events, your office walls. The Map Consultancy does it all. Visit themapconsultancy.com and get the best maps today.